0: Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives when his disciples came to him and asked him, what will be the sign of your coming? And instead of a date or an exact checklist, Jesus gave them a description of the future that was to come. He gave them warnings to heed about the temptations his people would face. And he gave them examples to follow to teach them how they should wait. He taught them that the Son of Man will arrive unexpectedly that he will return in surprising glory at a time that nobody is able to predict. Like a servant who doesn't know when his master will be back to check on him, like a sheep who doesn't know when the shepherd will return, Jesus told his disciples that we can't prepare for him to return at a certain time. Instead, he instructed them to be ready for his return at all times. Our Savior made a promise. The dawn is coming, and our teacher gave us a warning. Are you ready?
1: Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, if you, we know that you are for us, and if you are for us, who can be against us? If you who did not spare your own son but gave him up for us all, how will you not also give us all things? And so, Lord, we ask you this morning something that we don't deserve to ask, but we ask you in Jesus. Would you show us your glory through your word? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so uh, good morning. My name is Tom. I'm one of the elders here at LAFC. And uh, the elder board actually just got back yesterday from our annual elder retreat where we spent about 48 hours away. We go to a, a cabin that one of our members here graciously lends us. And it gives us some space to dig deeper into topics that we typically wouldn't have the time to wrestle with in our regular meetings. So this past retreat, we were looking at topics like uh, discipleship and church revitalization. The time also gives us a chance to to relate to one another, to get to know each other more deeply. And one of the things that I've observed over the last few years as I spent more time with these older guys is that older men like to talk about the way that things have changed. Uh, So it could be how the world has changed or possibly um, how technology has changed or maybe even how their bodies have changed. Now, one of the more alarming discoveries of this trip is that I've started to relate to them. (laughs) And I've been able to add my own experiences in. So that's something that I've got to struggle with, but that's not what we're talking about today. Today, we're going to be back in Matthew 24. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, It's important that you do, because this morning the Bible is our authority, not me. So go ahead and turn to Matthew 24. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers will be happy to provide you one. And you might recall, if you were with us last week, that the series we're in, is teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples, a few of his disciples, privately about a few days before his crucifixion. And what he is doing as they ask him some questions is to try and prepare them for what's to come, both how to navigate through his death and his resurrection and also to to teach them how to live in anticipation of his return. So we're going to be today in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 8, although I'm going to start reading in verse 3 to give us a little bit of context. And when I finish reading through these, uh, these five verses, uh, I'm going to say something that most of the world does not agree with. I'm going to say that this is the word of the Lord. And so when I finish reading and I say that, would you just respond at that point by saying, thanks be to God. So chapter 24, starting in verse 3 of Matthew. It says as jesus was sitting on the mount of olives the disciples came to him privately tell us they said when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age jesus answered watch out that no one deceives you for many will come in my name saying, claiming i am the messiah and will deceive many you will hear of wars and rumors of wars but see to it that you are not alarmed such things must happen but the end is still to come Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So this discourse is the beginning how Jesus responds to his disciples' questions on the signs of the end of the age and of his second coming. And this text is considered to be partially apocalyptic and partially prophetic which basically means it doesn't make it onto many flannel boards. It's not a topic of many kidmin lessons because there's aspects of it that are a little bit more difficult to understand. And one of the questions we have to ask ourselves when we read our text this morning is which time period is Jesus referring to when he talks about these various things? And there's basically three different options. First, he could be talking about the time immediately after his death and resurrection. So those first couple years or those first couple decades. Or he could be talking about the time immediately before his second coming. And a third possible option is he may be describing the time between those two events. The time between his first and his second coming, which is the age that we currently live in today. Now, thankfully for us, he gives us a couple of clues in our text. The first one you'll find is in, in uh, verse 6. If you look down there in the second half of the verse, Jesus says, such things must happen, but the end is still to come. In other words, when you see these different things, the wars, the rumors of wars, the false messiahs, know that the end will not come immediately. Okay, so the second clue, if you go down a couple more verses down into verse 8 you'll see him say that all of these things are the beginning of birth pains. Now, this imagery of birth pains is one that's pretty common in Scripture, especially in prophecy. You'll maybe remember a few weeks ago we read out of Thessalonians. You'll also find it if you go back to the Old Testament, and we're going to be in it again here today. And so I just want to take a moment and acknowledge that there are some of you whose experience with the pains of birth are not the types of pains that are being described here. And what I mean by that is, I know in a room this size, there are many who have experienced the pain of infertility, of miscarriage, um, and, and, and those types of things, infant death. And so my prayer coming into this has been that as we talk about the truth and the hope that this imagery points to, that it would bring you comfort in if, if that has been your experience. Now, my wife and I, we struggled through three years of infertility. After that, we were blessed to have three kids. And what I got to witness through that process is uh, there's a certain type of birth pains that we call Braxton Hicks. All right, So this is a a pain that feels like the real thing, but it's not really the real thing. It's just a way of preparing the body for what's to come. Uh, Some might say it's pain with a purpose. Now, our last child gave my wife so many of these things... And we went to the hospital a couple different times that when he really came, we didn't really believe he was coming. He was kind of like the boy who cried wolf and he wound up being a boy. Um, And and so we left way too late for the hospital. I was about 11 minutes away from delivering a child on Route 30. When, if you know me, I struggle with no, I, I struggle even with handling nosebleeds. So, this would have been, this would have been quite traumatic. And my, hard for my wife, too, I, I would expect. <laughs> um, so, but I wanna just, let's, let's consider this, this passage now in light of what we now know from history. Okay? So, as we consider these various signs that Jesus gives and we think about that time after Christ's first coming, we can see these things happening. In Acts chapter 8, we know persecution breaks out against the church. We know of a guy named Simon Magus who claimed to be God, claimed to be a Messiah, and many believe are, uh, is the same guy as Simon the sorcerer, who's also mentioned in Acts chapter 8. And then as we are, have already talked about and will continue talking about through this series, a few decades after Christ's first coming, the nation of Rome rose up against the nation of Israel, laying siege to Jerusalem and destroying the temple. So if you were a disciple, one of these disciples who have heard this, in that time, you would be thinking birth pains, birth pains. We're seeing this happen around us, but we know the end has not yet come. Famines, earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, all of these things have continued until this present day. Um, which means that the signs, these birth pains that we're seeing, these Braxton Hicks, are not so much a sign of the end, but more a sign of the age. In other words, these things that we see are characteristic of all of the things that are going to happen between Christ's first and his second coming. So then, um, if, if these are not signs of the end, but signs of the age, why does Jesus include them here? And I think the answer to that is that it's because it's relevant to the warning that he gives us in verse 4. I'll read that again. He says, Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. You see, the warning is the point of the passage that we're in this morning. Because when things go terribly wrong or things that disturb us or alarm us seem to be happening with greater and greater frequency, that tends to be the moment when we're most susceptible to being deceived. And so Jesus warns his disciples to watch out because there will be those who appeal to our fear or our uncertainty in those times and may say things like, such things should not be happening. Or... Maybe they'll say, such things didn't used to happen. Or maybe they might say, if we would just do this, this, and this, and such things would not continue to happen, to which our Lord calmly prepares us with his response, and he says, such things must happen. And then he gives us our marching orders, which have very little to do with the things and much more with how we are supposed to behave in the midst of the things. And one of those things is to watch out. One of those instructions is to watch out that no one deceives us, for they will deceive many. So when I was in eighth grade, I, uh, I took a bird watching course, okay? Now, um, as I recall, I was much more interested in watching a girl who signed up for that course than I was birds. So I just wanna clarify so you guys don't think I'm weird. Uh, But in that course, I do remember learning a couple different things along the way. And one of those is how to identify the birds that you're looking at. And there were a handful of specific marks that you would look for, characteristics or traits of birds, such as maybe their, their size or their color, maybe their song or where you find them at or the time of year that you're seeing them in. And so these different marks help you to identify the bird that you're looking at. Now here we use this concept of marks uh, commonly as a church to help remind us and distill down what Scripture tells us as what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ. We call these our four marks of a disciple. They are to love God, love people, live truth, and proclaim Jesus. So I want to prepare and equip us this morning to obey this command that Jesus has to, to watch out by using this concept of marks in order to help us identify... Quickly identify who deceivers are. So we're going to look at four marks of a deceiver this morning. They're going to be on the screen behind me for most of our time. And the four marks are this. They're impersonate God, mislead people, live a lie, and deny Jesus. Okay, those are the four marks. That's where we're going this morning. Um, So we're going to look at these four marks from scripture so we can quickly identify when deceivers are coming in and using the events of our day, either the, the, the macro events that are going on or possibly the trials that you find yourself in in your own life as a platform to deceive us and mislead us. And my hope is that by equipping us to look for these things, we would be prepared for this and be able to turn away from them and towards the truth. So that's where we're going. Uh, Hopefully you're up for that. We're going to just jump right in here to the first mark. Impersonate God. This is the first mark of a deceiver. For this, we're going to open up. We're going to look back here in in Matthew 24, starting in verse 5. He says, For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah. Okay, so they're going to try and impersonate the Messiah. They're going to claim to be what the Messiah is. Now, Messiah is not a word that we use very often anymore. Now, it may be unless you're a Messiah grad, in which case, I hope their Bible department covered what Messiah means, but just in case they didn't, we're gonna define it for everyone. So Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed one, okay? Just as Christ is the Greek word for anointed one, So these two things, these two words basically mean the same thing. When you hear Messiah, you should think Christ. When you hear Christ, you should think Messiah. The apostle John actually tells us twice in his gospel that these two words are synonymous, and both of them mean anointed one. Now, when we think anointing, especially in the context of the first century, with disciples who are familiar with the Old Testament, there should be certain people or roles that might come to mind for us as we think about anointing. Maybe you think about the kings. The kings of Israel were anointed. You might think of Saul and David that the prophet Samuel anointed, and that anointing carried down through the kings. Or maybe your mind goes to Exodus, where Moses has given detailed instructions on the priests, both how the anointing mixtures to be made and also instructions for how Aaron and his sons and the priests after him are all supposed to be anointed. Or perhaps um, there's, there's at least one, there's one prophet that we know, the prophet Elijah, who, Elisha, who was also anointed. Now, all three of these roles have something in common. They all are roles and people that God ordained for the people of Israel that would represent God to man and man back to God. They stood in between holy God and unholy man. They acted in a way as mediators between God and man in their different functions. So the kings ruled, the priests atoned, and the prophets spoke. Now the good news of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One, is that he steps in and perfectly and completely fills all of these anointed roles. That's why he's called Jesus Christ. So that's, and we call him now everlasting king, great high priest, and the son, no longer just prophet, but the son through whom God now speaks. And any man who seeks to know God can know God through this mediator, Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. So now, as we, as we consider our text, and we know that there's going to be people who try to impersonate this, we have to ask, so what does it mean to impersonate those things? And the answer is that it's the answer to that is vast. Just as the, the roles that Christ fills as the complete and perfect media, mediator are vast, so the imitations are also vast. So just to equip you with one example— We're going to talk about just one aspect of ways that this might be, this Messiah function might be impersonated. And to do this, I'm going to read out of a a text from Luke chapter four. You don't have to turn there, it'll be on the screen. Uh, This is probably familiar to some of you. And when Jesus talks about his anointing in this way, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So just to pluck one of those out of there, one of the messianic kingly duties he does is to set the prisoner free. And in my mind, this brings to mind a commander-in-chief who leads his military in in order to free some POWs. Except in our case, our king is freeing us from bondage to sin and death. Can you track with that? Now, if we consider this in in the first century context, the king was bringing this kind of spiritual freedom. But there were other types of freedoms that the people were longing for that Jesus did not bring. Which opens up the door for deceivers to step in with a different message of freedom that appeals to the heart. Peter describes this in his second letter. He says, For they mouth empty boastful words by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh. They entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves to depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. So that was then. Now this is now where we live in a culture that's probably more immersed in messages of freedom than of any culture in history. And so a simple warning regarding deceivers is this, is that they will try and seek to persuade you to hold certain messages of freedom in greater value than the freedom you have in Christ. It will try and turn your hearts towards temporal freedoms and to neglect the real freedom, the eternal freedom that we have in Jesus. And so if a good litmus test, as you're wrestling through, is it possible that I've been deceived by this kind of um, messianic, uh, impersonating message would be this. Are there any freedoms that you hold in greater value than the freedom you have in Christ? So if there's a a freedom, a temporal freedom that you find to be more important to you than the freedom from sin and death that you've received in Christ, there's a chance that you've started to be misled by one of these impersonating messages. And there's many more. There's many messianic prophecies that we are offered alternate versions of in our day. We are offered messages of so-called love, rest, power, peace, blessing, and many other examples of blessings that we have in Christ, the anointed one. And so uh, because there's so many aspects to this, in your bulletin there's a discussion guide if you happen to be part of a life group that will help uh, direct your group to engage with this topic a little bit more because we have to keep moving here this morning. And I would encourage you to do so. So that's the first mark, impersonate God. Second mark, mislead others. You see, there's two groups of people in this false messiah transaction. There are the deceivers, and then there are the deceived. um, Jesus warns us about those who seek to mislead us so that we don't become those who are misled. All right, so to dig more into this mark and also the ones that follow it, we're actually going to turn to some writing from one of the apostles that was present when Jesus gave this teaching. Now this guy has got probably the most like street cred of all the apostles with regard to the end times. Uh, this, his name's the Apostle John. So if you would, we're actually going to spend the rest of our time there this morning. So go ahead and turn to your scripture to the end of the, the Bible, to Revelation, which the Apostle John wrote. And then once you get there, actually flip to your left a few pages, because we're not in Revelation. We're going to be in the book of 1 John, just a few pages to the the left. We're going to in 1 John chapter 2, and I'm going to start reading in verse 18. John says this. He says, Dear children, this is the last hour. I'm just going to pause for a second. When John says children, he means the church. And when he says last hour, he's not talking about the last 60 minutes. He's talking about the entire time between Christ's first and second coming. Just to give you context where we're at. He says, dear children, this is the last hour. And you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belong to us. Okay, so first I don't want you to get thrown off by the big A word that he drops in here, Antichrist, right? So when we hear the word antichrist, what comes to mind for many of us is a late middle-aged Romanian dude by the name of Nikolai Carpathia. For some of you at least, right this is what I grew up in. this is the Left Behind series, and I don 't want that to distract what John is actually teaching us here i 'm going to read you another verse from his next letter over that brings more clarity as to what he means when he says Antichrist. He says, "I say this to you because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver." And the Antichrist. Okay, so while there is strong scriptural support for a final climactic Antichrist, what John is trying to tell us here is that anyone who is Antichrist or Anti Messiah or Anti Anointed One is a deceiver. So in his mind, when he says Antichrist, he may be thinking the final, but he's also thinking much more broadly. And he, both him and Jesus say there's gonna be many of them. Okay, so that helps orient us to, to what he's saying here. Now, I don't know if you caught in verse 19 where John said these deceivers would originate from. You guys catch that? In verse 19, he says, they, will, they went out from us in other words the church which means that as we think about deceivers we should expect that they might sound a little bit churchy they might be familiar with our scripture in fact they'll probably use scripture in their deception consider this quote from c.s lewis's last battle he says and then she understood the devilish cunning of the enemy's plan by mixing a little truth with it, they had made their lie far stronger. Okay, so when we consider the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, we have to expect that in that moment, um, Satan tipped his hand as to three of his best strategies for deceiving the church. And one of those strategies, if you recall, is to use scripture. Scripture. Now, I know, especially in our culture, there are many, like, many politicians who use Scripture to kind of like give a little bit of oomph to their message. I don't really think that's what John's talking about here. I think what he has in mind is people who are seeking to influence us spiritually. This could be local pastors. Or it could be people more in the public sphere. Maybe professors, authors, bloggers online influencers, people who are generating content with spiritual undertones, trying to give us, proclaim to us a message. Now we know, again, we said both Jesus and John say there's gonna be many of them. So we can expect that there are many in our world who will do this, and with modern technology, their message will be amplified. We're gonna hear these false messages much more. So my question is this. If deceivers are using scripture, how are we supposed to know who to trust? How do you know you can trust me? Let's read in verse 20. Continue reading John chapter two, verse 20. He says, but you have an anointing, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. You see, our modern world is no surprise to Jesus. He knew that such things were going to happen. And so at the beginning of this age, after his first coming, he put a plan in motion to protect and to preserve the church. And his plan to protect and preserve the church is the church. He has equipped us individually and corporately, to stand our ground against this in the anointing that we received when we were united with the anointed one. And in that spirit, we can know the truth, which is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So how do you know you can trust me? It's a wrong question. I'm not asking for your trust. What we're doing though is we're handing out Bibles and we're asking you to open them and see for yourself the glory of God that comes through the pages of his living and active word. That's that's what we want you to see and delight in when you join us on a Sunday morning. And it's got nothing to do with those of us who are up front. But know that if you come to church if you come to church ignorant or dependent on the preacher or if you find yourself in a church context that cultivates that ignorance by using only token references to scripture, then my warning for you is to watch out that no one deceives you. But even if you were born again yesterday, you can have the hope that you have the anointing to know the truth. And so you just need to seek to grow in it. And I would encourage you to do that in the context of a God-loving, Bible-preaching congregation, which I hope you find yourself in this morning. We'll keep moving here. That's the second mark. Third mark, live a lie. We're going to start 2 John 12. 12- Or 1 John 2, starting at verse 20, he says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. Okay, so the third market of a deceiver is that they're a liar, or one who lives a lie. Now, if we were going through this whole book, you would see that John uses this word a bunch of different times, five different times he uses the word liar, and what he means when he says this is that there's a disconnect in the person. In other words, what they say in one place and what they say in another, it doesn't match up, or maybe more deeply, who they are on the inside does not match what they're saying on the outside. Now, this would be kind of like bumping into one of your whole 30 friends when you're in line at McDonald's. Like something just isn't matching up. And so he warns us about this kind of disconnect to be on guard for it. It's a mark of a deceiver. And on this point, I want to speak directly to those of you who are with us this morning who have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I hope you're seeing a picture of the real world that we live in. That there are gonna be some, if not many, who profess to be Christ, but who are liars. And so when you look at their life, you're gonna see inside that they are greedy, or prideful, or self-absorbed, or fake. And maybe that disconnect has been what has turned you off to the Christian faith. Perhaps you've even been hurt by someone like this. You see, we know that the world is filled with wolves who are disguised as sheep. But we also know that God permits the darkness to continue and these deceivers to continue because he knows that such times are needed in order to save more of his people out of darkness and into light. He he allows it to persist because he is continuing to set more of his people free from it. You see, the Bible tells us that we are all born into slavery to sin and bondage and as enemies of the king. But that if we repent of our sins and we put our trust and our faith in Jesus, he will bring us out of darkness into light. He will set us free from that captivity. That's my story. And so if you desire to know true freedom, know that if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. And if that is stirring in your heart, know that you are in a room full of freed captives who would love to show you the way out. So don't leave, don't leave here the way that you came in. Our last mark. Is deny Christ. Let's keep reading here, Uh, picking up in verse 22. Holy Spirit says, Who is the liar? It is whoever denies Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So here we see the message, the message of the Antichrist and that is to deny the son or to deny the deity the godship of Jesus. And if you remember from our text that we read from 2nd John, another message that they have is that they deny that Jesus came in the flesh. In other words, they deny either the deity or the humanity of Christ. And we see this begin to affect the church very early on, which is why the church uh, fathers, they gathered councils and they wrote creeds to help remind us what scripture truly teaches about Jesus Christ. They They wrote things like that Jesus Christ was truly God and truly man. This statement of faith of our denomination says something similar. It says we believe Jesus Christ is God incarnate. Fully God and fully man, one person and two natures. Now, to be sure, there's many outside the church that don't agree with this. But here, when we have such clear statements at our disposal, do you think that we can fall into this same kind of error or deception? I think that we do. I just think it looks a little bit different than it did for the early church. I think we deny the deity of Christ when we rely on ourselves more than we rely on him. Or when we think that our actions are more important than our prayers. Or when we try to live like Jesus without depending on Jesus. And that pendulum can also swing the other way. I think we deny the humanity of Christ when we hide our failures from him or when we think that our limitations or our weaknesses make us somehow less useful for his plan or when we begin to believe that our suffering means we must be walking outside of his will. These are deceptions that we all face. You're not alone. I struggle with them too, which is why proclaiming Jesus is one of the marks of a disciple. You see, this is more than evangelistic, although that's part of it. But proclaiming Jesus, the nature of who he was and continues to be, is part of our defense against being deceived. It's one of the four marks that we think is essential for us as disciples in a healthy church. So we proclaim to each other that Jesus is the true Messiah, both the lion and the lamb, who was for a little while made lower, but now we know is seated on the throne. He is wrapped in wounded flesh, victorious over sin and death and crowned with glory and honor. So you don't need to put the world on your shoulders because he's God, and we also don't need to hide ashamed because he's man Jesus is one person with two natures god incarnate who suffered the calamities and this life to the point of death knowing that such things must happen in order for the glory of his power to be put on full display when he rose again Out of humiliation springs exaltation. I love the way that Spurgeon puts this. He says, your sorrow itself shall be turned into joy. Not the sorrow to be taken away and the joy to be put in its place, but the very sorrow which now grieves you shall be turned into joy. God not only takes away the bitterness and gives sweetness in its place, but the bitterness turns the bitterness into sweetness itself. This is the power of our king. He permits such times as we live in and the trials that you find yourself in because his power is made perfect in weakness. He says, let anyone who is thirsty come and drink. Now, anyone who's labored outside knows that the the labor and the heat and the toil that increases the thirst also increases the satisfaction when that thirst is quenched. So we labor on in such times as we find ourselves, but not as those who have no hope. No, we struggle on like a woman who is in labor, who is living in anticipation of what is to come next, which is life. That's the promise that's the promise of remaining in the Father and the Son is eternal life, which is knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord and King. So as we turn to worship, just consider this. Consider Joseph, who was dressed in his royal robes, who looked out and he saw ten men who were dirty and poor and hungry, but he saw them as brothers. And even though they had despised him and sinned against him, he knew it was so that the the power and might and glory of his grace might be shown. This is our king. So we live in anticipation of that day of birth, which, by the way, not a very um, good day. It will be the day when the enemies of Christ Rise up against him. The deceivers rise up and take their stand against our king. But we know from Revelation that the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Let's praise him.
2: Amen. This is the celebration that is made complete, that is made more because of our weakness and the trials. So let's stand. Let's proclaim the joy that we've been moving forward to all morning. Let's crown our Savior and praise him.
1: i enjoyed opening the word with you guys today. Um, just some things to remember as you go out from here. Don't settle for imitations of the blessings that we have in Christ. Also, live out your anointing. And make sure you do it. Find a group of four or five or ten believers that you can do this with. That's why we have things like ABFs where we can dig deep into teaching and out of that form life groups We also happen to have a connect group starting on Wednesday where you can get connected with other believers, but it's important that you don't do the Christian life alone. That's the most important thing. If I've learned one thing from National Geographic is that the strays get eaten. So don't, don't be that. Um, Third, I just want to say, if you have felt your heart stirring this morning, don't leave without responding. Our gathering does not end when I'm done. Prayer is an important part of it. So make sure you find someone to pray with around you. We have an encounter room in the back. I'd be happy to pray with you as well. And lastly, make sure you are proclaiming the anointed one. We should be doing this with each other, in our families, in our church, in every context we find ourselves in. So I'm just going to close by reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The Holy Spirit says, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves for, as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Hope you have a blessed week. You are dismissed.